You're listening to a podcast produced by the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies, the Centre for West European Studies and the EU Centre at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit our website at jsis.washington.edu forward slash cwes euc. And uh, we'll start with, uh, in, in sequence, the way you appear on the uh, program. So, Lauren is the first speaker. Lauren is from Baylor uh, University in, in, in Texas. And does this follow nobody? Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm an international studies major from Baylor, like you just said. I'm, and I'm a junior. Okay, so you'll be back here next year. Uh, possibly. Uh, <laughs> And Lauren is going to speak tonight about the significance of the trends shown in the Austrian party system during the 1990s. And don't forget, the title of the panel is Extremism and Populism, really um, hot topics in the European Union. Please. Uh, my name is Austin Hudgens. I'm a senior at the University of Washington in Seattle. I. Uh, study international studies with a focus on West European politics, and I have a double major in political science and a minor in Russian, East European, and Central Asian politics. And another Austin. We have two Austins tonight. Yeah. It doesn't happen all the time. <laughs> it does. Yeah, hi, I'm the other Austin. I am a junior at Pomona College, a public policy analysis major, um, and I'm presenting on uh, populism and can you survive with populism, in the age of populism. Please join me in welcoming Lauren for her So like I said, I wrote on the significance of the trends in the Austrian political party in the 1990s. Now, I don't know if all of you know who this is, but this is Jörg Haider. And his, his party was actually in coalition with another party in the 1990s. And during this time, the European Union was so concerned about how far right he was that other European Union diplomats refused to sit next to Austrian diplomats as a form of protest because this guy had been elected. He's got Nazi connections and he says a lot of really kind of borderline xenophobic things. So I kind of wanted to know what was the political climate that allowed this guy to get to get elected in the first place. So this is a graph and this is the left-right indicator. This data comes from the Manifesto Project, which looks at party platforms and then sort of kind of tabulates all their values and the things they believe and then compiles them into a single value based on how far, on how far left or right they are. The, far, the farther <coughs> negative they are, the more left-leaning they are, and the more positive, the more right-leaning they are. As you can see, there was a bit of a spike in the 1990s towards the right. And then it went down again in the... In the, in the election of 2002 to basically the same point, but this time on the far left. And this was a really extreme change. As you can see, the Green Party, which used to be the most the far left-leaning party, was more far right in 1995 than the farthest far right party had been in 1990. So I kind of wanted to see what was the cause of this. And to do this, I first applied the Downs proximity model. It argues that voters, essentially, in a two-party system, what happens is the parties seek to find the median voter because that's the way they can acquire the most support for their party. 
And this is a theory that was from Meyer and Muller, and they did it in 2014. And from there, there are then two conflicting causal models that you can apply to the situation. The first is realignment. And this argues essentially as time goes on, voters become less concerned about old issues such as economic issues, industrial issues, things like that, and they instead seek to find parties that represent new issues that they care about more, such as women's rights, human rights in general, environmental rights. So if this were to happen, you can expect to see voters will begin to vote unpredictably, but they will vote along a new left-right block. And the other model is de-alignment. In this case, voters also begin to vote unpredictably. Voter turnout might drop, in fact, and short-lived parties may splinter off from each other. But this is completely different from realignment because in this case, the voters still want to stay, with, stay within the same left-right block. But in this case, they're just incredibly frustrated and they feel that none of the current parties are accurately representing the interests the, the, interest the voters have. In this case, they're just basically like, kind of throwing their votes wherever in a chance to get better representation. And this is a theory from Dalton Wattenberg from 2000. So in order to test my theory, I sort of looked at the first three elections in the 1990s as sort of the rightward spike that's happening. And in 1990, the OVP and the SPO, which had been the dominant party systems in Austria, fell drastically in the polls. And third parties picked up. There were parties that hadn't had seats in parliament. They were picking up seats for the first time and voter turnout drop. All of these signs tend to point to de-alignment. And then in 1994, the SPO and the OVP, which are the two main parties in Austria, actually failed to pick up a majority for the first time. And there was a bunch of splinter parties that formed, such as the, such as the Liberal Forum, and essentially these formed off of the FPO, which was the far-right party and George Hader's party at the time. And there was just Frustrations over little issues that completely splintered the parties apart. And then next, the next one in 1995 was when the government of 1994 fell apart because they couldn't agree on anything. So in this case, the voter turnout actually increased, but this doesn't point towards realignment, it points towards dealignment because the vast majority were waivers. So they didn't decide who they were going to vote for until the actual day of the election. A lack of party loyalty is another thing that tends to point towards the alignment. So after finding all this evidence that suggested de-alignment, I still needed to test in case, just to make sure that realignment wasn't the case. So this is more data from the Manifesto project, but this time it's a different indicator. It's on a post-materialist indicator and on a percent of the vote one. If voters were searching for parties that were more post-materialist instead of materialist, then you would see increasing support towards the parties as they become more post-materialist. As you can see, there's no correlation, except for in the FPO, which gradually gets more percent of the vote as they become more post-materialist, but every other party, the voters just don't seem to care. So this pretty much disproves the theory of realignment in this case. And this is the percent of the vote received in Austria up until 2017, <coughs> their most recent election. As you can see, it went from a pretty simple party system of two major parties with a couple of third party system with a couple of third parties to the craziness you see over here. And a lot of these parties, such as the orange one here, is a splinter off. That's the Alliance for the Future of Austria that split off. It's actually Jörg Hader split from the FPO because he thought they became too right wing, which is kind of funny for a guy who is connected <coughs> to Nazis. And then 
And then there's also the Peter Plitz list, which split off from the Green Party, which even dropped out of Parliament because they couldn't receive the get over the 4% vote threshold. And this just shows that the effects of dealignment are continuing in the Austrian system even today. You expect to see more and more splinter parties, and there's more parties forming around charismatic figures, such as Peter Pliss and Stronach, as you can see in Team Stronach, and it's, this is harmful for democracy. And these are all of my sources. And that's it. The way I was going to react to the papers and respond to the papers was actually I was going to uh, do this at the end after we've had all three presentations. Although they're not intrinsically connected, it is my job to then find some sort of common denominator and common topics. And I will try to do that. So let's remember uh, Lauren's presentation on the changes, the, the swings in the 1990s in the Austrian party system and her main point that this is a de-alignment, not a realignment. And we'll take it from there in the general discussion at the end, in which I hope all of you will, of course, participate to the extent of everybody's possibility. We're right? not all specialists in the Austrian party system, so <laughs> that's Lauren. OK? Yeah. Let's move right on then to Austin Hudgens. And his paper is The Quiet Rise of the Far Left. We've been hearing a lot about we've been hearing a lot about the rise of the far right, not just in Europe but in the US as well, I dare say. And here comes Austin and speaks about the quiet rise of the far left. Please join me in welcoming Austin. Thank you so much. Uh, I want to thank, first of all, for putting this on. This is a great opportunity. And I want to thank you so much, Professor, for coming and evaluating our work. My pleasure. Um, so my research and my paper was on the rise of far-left parties in Europe. Uh, a lot in the discourse today is about right-wing populism and about uh, the resurgence of the right and about how social democracy and the vision of a European left is very much in decline and no longer relevant. My paper touches on three leftist parties that I argue are very relevant and have continued to show their electoral success. These parties are Die Linke in Germany, Unidos Podemos in Spain, and Syriza in Greece. I then contrast this with two social democratic parties in decline, uh, which are the SPD in Germany and the PSOE in Spain. And I look at what makes the far left so attractive nowadays, and why uh, the center left, the social democrats, are going into the So firstly, the rise of social democracy, and focused around workers' rights, the labor movement, and uh, Marxist thought. Social democracy gained its strongest threshold in the Nordic countries and in Germany, and from there, split itself among social democrats and communists. So the main difference between social democrats and communists, at least at that time, was that social democrats wanted to achieve the ideals of socialism, but wanted to do that through the prism of democracy. They didn't want to overthrow the system, they wanted to work towards socialist goals intermittently. 
Communists, on the other hand, advocated for the overthrow of the system and therefore split from social democrats, seeing them as not sufficiently left-wing now. So the interwar and post-war period for social democracy. The interwar period saw a split among social democrats. Some social democrats, like the ones in Germany, supported World War I and therefore took a large hit with the left. And anyone who knows the figure on the left here? Rosa Luxemburg. Yeah, Rosa Luxemburg. Perfect. And so she was a German socialist and Polish socialist, but she split from the Social Democrats after, she was also a pacifist, after World War I, uh, when they voted to go into World War I, and she and Karl Liebknecht were killed. They were founders of the Spartacus League, which then formed into the Communist Party of Germany. And the Communist Party of Germany rose power in East Germany after World War II, and today she is very much a symbol for Die Linke in modern-day Germany. So the rise of the Middle Way and the Scandinavian model follows the success of Nordic Social Democratic parties. These Social Democratic parties did not buy into the full Leninist ideology of, say, the Soviet Union, but were not fully enthralled with Anglo-American capitalism, and therefore sought to balance capitalism with state intervention and um, more socialist ideologies. So now, for this portion, I'm going to break down the decline of the two uh, social democratic parties that I mentioned at the beginning. So the first of them is the PSOE, which is the, uh, or the social democratic party in Spain. So it was one of the two big parties in Spain after the restoration of democracy. Its main challenger was the Popular Party, and they were the center-right opposition. The PSOE enjoyed large success following the restoration of Spanish democracy due to, first of all, it being persecuted under Franco's dictatorship and a strong tradition of social democracy and socialism within Spain. However, after its last run in office in 2008 to 2011, it took a large hit due to the financial collapse and the Eurozone crisis. There's a lot of blame on the chairman of the uh, PSOE, firstly because Spain's economy at the time, right before the collapse of the Eurozone, it was the third largest economy in the Eurozone. It had just overtaken Italy as to become the third largest, and uh, their leader made big pronouncements to the Spanish public, saying that even though the Eurozone crisis is coming now, we can see bits of it, Spain will be fine. Spain will not be affected, and there will be no need for harsh austerity or whatnot. This proved not to be true. What ended up happening was, after promising these things, he pushed through a 5% reduction in uh, civil servant salary, he slashed public investment, froze pensions, and uh, extended the retirement age by two years. This led to massive social unrest and to uh, infighting within the party. <clears throat> this led to the elections in 2011, which saw the PSOE win only 28% of the vote. My other social democratic party in decline is the SPD. The SPD is one of the oldest social democratic parties in Europe. Uh, it has a long history of labor activism, uh, welfare implementation, and is credited with really steering Germany after World War II towards a more social democratic state. Uh, some of the big policies are Ostpolitik, so uh, kind of interaction with the communist bloc at the time, and welfare implementation. However, the fall of the SPD really comes with the Gerhard Schroeder years and the Hartz reforms and Agenda 2010. 
Hearts reforms were basically uh, reforms to the pension system, reforms to uh, unemployment, and to social security. And this was part of an ambitious agenda to try and revitalize the German economy following uh, reunification. Another factor that led to the decline of the Social Democrats and a lot of anger among their left-leaning uh, constituents was their continued participation in grand coalitions led by the CDU, the CDU being the center-right party in Germany. These coalitions lasted from 2005 to 2009, 2013 to 2017, and the most recent iteration in 2017, um, at this last election. So their decline in electoral success is really quite remarkable. Uh, they went from highs in the 40% at the beginning of the Gerhard Schroeder years to 20.5% in the last election, only 8% higher than the odd day, which reached the Bundestag for the first time. Many of the problems that faced the SPD were moving towards the center. For example, the Hartz reforms led a rebellion within the SPD, which formed a new party called uh, the Electoral Alternative for Labor and Social Justice. That party formed with a former communist party, uh, the PDS, which was the former party of East Germany, and formed Die Linke, which I will talk about. But first, before I go into what the far or what the parlet is, I just want to define it. So the late 1800s uh, saw the split between social democrats and communists. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was a lot of terms being thrown around. There is ideological mismatch, and so I use uh, Professor Luke Marx. Uh, or March's definition of far left being far left is anything to the left of social democracy, viewing it as not sufficiently leftist enough. So that includes the far left, the radical left. It's just not social democracy. <coughs> so the first party is Syriza. Syriza uh, rose to power rapidly in Greece following financial crises. Financial collapse led to the collapse also of the two-party system in Greece. You had PASOK, which was the Pan-Hellenic Socialist Movement, and New Democracy, which was the center-right. The center-right and center-left basically formed together in a grand coalition that then had to push through harsh austerity measures from the Troika, which were European Central Bank, and the IMF. Um, and these harsh austerity measures were opposed by those on the left in PASOK, and by a large portion of society. Syriza used this, this opposition to the first uh, Memorandum of Understanding as a way to gain protest votes, to increase their socialist credentials, to fight off from the left, the um, Communist Party in Greece, and to propel themselves to electoral success. And so in this graph, you can see pink is um, Syriza, green is PASOK, blue is New Democracy, this is the election in May 2012. This electoral result of 16.8% was a fourfold increase for Syriza and catapulted them to the national stage. The next election, held shortly thereafter, uh, saw Syriza become the second largest party with 26.9% of the vote. And at this point in time, uh, New Democracy and uh, PASOK basically formed a unity government to guide Greece through the financial collapse and asked all parties except for Golden Dawn, the far right party, to join with them in order to uh, help steer Greece. Syriza protested this because they did not believe in the uh, like memorandum of understandings and the austerity measures that were going to be pushed. And for this reason, 
They kept on that point, and by January 2015, they swept the electoral map with 36.3% of the vote and 149 seats in parliament. That also helps that the first, the party to come in first in, Greece poli in Greek politics gets an additional 50 seats regardless. And so it was these attributes of casting themselves as a catch-all protest party, uh, their bona fides as uh, an ideologically purist party, even though at the end they did accept the austerity measures, and their fact, the fact that they uh, espoused leftist economic principles that really secured their position in that time to become a major player and the major player in Greek politics. Moving to Dilinka, uh, Dilinka's electoral success has been not as rapid and not as uh, calculable as Syriza. The collapse of East Germany led to uh, a rebranding of the Socialist Unity Party, and that became the PDS. This merged, as I said, with a faction of the SPD, a leftist faction of the SPD, to become Die Linke, to compete on a broader scale and not just be a, an, East Europe, an East German protest party. So these two graphs right here are very interesting because we've talked a lot about the rise in recent like, times of the AfD and how the AfD has swept across and that Germany is convulsed now by this populist force in the East. And so this election in 2013, purple is the is Die Linke, green the Guna, and yellow is Free Democrats. These maps exclude the SPD and um, the CDU. And this shows that in 2013, Die Linke was the party of choice, the third party of choice in Eastern Germany. However, in 2017, it shows that the AfD has basically taken over and that they are the third party of choice in most of Germany. However, what this doesn't show is that there was an electoral rise, an electoral bump for Die Linke. They went from 8.6% of the vote to 9.2 and gained seats in parliament. And this slide right here shows where. So everything in the blue, and I'm sorry that it is a weird color, it's very hard to find, but everything in the blue here is either a marginal bump or the same in voter percentage, and everything in this yellow is where they lost votes. They did lose votes in the East, but they were able to keep most votes in the West, if not gain some. To contrast this, the SPD practically lost votes everywhere and hemorrhaged most of them either to the AfD or to Die Linke. And once again, this is due to Die Linke casting itself as a, a protest party from East Germany, and now for Greater Germany. It's being rejected on the national level, especially. It's rejected from every party on the national level. They will not work in coalition with them, so it allows them to maintain this ideological purity. And for its economic, uh, basically socialist rhetoric, it wants free tuition and more uh, nationalization and other things. Lastly, Unidos Podemos uh, rose to power in 2014, once again, coming off of austerity. This was due to the mismanagement, as I mentioned earlier, uh, by the PSOE of the financial crisis. It comes out of a protest movement, the 15M movement, which was against austerity and the layoffs caused by um, the crisis. And it jumped from nowhere. It was a party created out of several leftist parties uh, in 2014 to contest European elections. It got five seats in the European elections, and the next year became the third largest party in Spain, uh, grabbing 20.7% of the vote and 69 seats in Parliament. And so purple, oh, that doesn't show up well. Purple here is um, Unidos Podemos, 
blue popular party, and red is the PSOE. You can see that the POSE continued to take a hit, um, at least for the districts they won in 2016. Uh, and Unidas Podemos is now the official opposition party, seeing as the PSOE and the Popular Party are in a grand coalition. So reactions from the center left, and I'm sorry I'm rushing through this. Um, reactions with the center left, I'm contrasting here now the reactions of the SPD and how they have reacted to this rise on the left. So repeatedly since the shorter years, they have talked about corrections. These corrections are to the hearts uh, for and to kind of their centrist politics. However, they haven't really panned out much. As I mentioned earlier, they have gone into Grand Coalition repeatedly with the CDU, and that has seen their electoral success decline. This has led to much party infighting. Uh, originally, it broke off part of the SPD, and most recently, it saw open challenges from youth wing of the SPD calling for uh, no coalition with the CDU. Um, also, what is hurting the SPD is that they have completely ignored Dilinka on the national level. They still will not work with Dilinka on the national level. They work with them on the lander level, fine, but past that, they have ignored Dilinka and allowed them to continue their ideological zeal on the left and not have to get dirty by the hands of government. This, I now contrast labor and show that a leftist party and a social democratic party can adapt leftist views and gain electoral success again. Jeremy Corbyn, after he took over as head of labor, has moved labor far to the left and has advocated for a soft Brexit as a protest position. Very heavy leftist policies like nationalizing water companies, nationalizing uh, railways, nationalizing energy. And this has proven well for labor. They gained 40% of the vote, their second highest showing in over two decades. And they have put labor back on the map. And so lastly, the strategies of the far left have been, as I stated earlier, they have been to cast themselves as catch-all protest parties. So Dilinka as an East German and then as a loser of modernization party. Syriza against austerity and against the Troika. And Unidas Podemos against uh, what they see as a corrupt Spanish political system and uh, heavy-handed austerity measures. That picture is the former Greek finance minister who was known for his fiery talk against the EU. Um, they've also all gone over uh, leftist economic policy. They all advocate for a stronger hand of the government in welfare, in industry, and in regulation, especially uh, after the financial collapse and against large banks and corporations. And their ideological purity, all of them have at some point claimed this ideological purity, either from rejecting coalition governments as compromising or as um, being ignored, like Dilinka is, on the national stage. And in conclusion, uh, social democracy has suffered due to two trends, growth towards centrist politics and uh, the emergence of credible challenges on the left. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, it really did seem like the idea of a far-left party or a far-left politics was doomed. It was not usable. However, uh, far-left parties have succeeded electorally as the center has converged. And this is kind of, as I said, protest politics, socialist rhetoric, and ideological purity. However, social democracy can become relevant again, and the case of labor, I think, really does prove this by the adoption of more leftist-leaning policies and staking out that claim on the ideological left 
and oppo in opposition to a center-right party has shown them to gain electoral success. Thank you. Our third speaker is Austin Prater from Mona College. Can you survive populism? Is his topic? Please join me in welcoming Austin. Uh, good evening, and thank you all for being here. Um, there's a, a wave of populism that has really emerged uh, in the recent past few years. Uh, frustrated with the status quo, with uh, socioeconomic inequality, uh, people have turned to populist leaders to express their frustration. They've rallied behind people such as Donald Trump or Nigel Farage in, in Britain um, over the establishment candidates um, that have ruled government for, for generations. Populism, it seems, has become popular. Um, this is especially true in the European Union, uh, where there are concerns that, that populism really could tear the Euro European Union apart um, as populist leaders pursue policies that uh, either threaten to leave the European Union, as you see in, in Brexit, or that uh, punish uh, freedom of the press, uh, punish minority political groups. Um, and at the same time, it's unlikely that uh, you'll see anything more than a temporary halt from these populist parties in terms of European integration. It's not a true threat to further European cohesion. Um, if anything, uh, the European Union has survived crises before, and this is nothing more, and this is nothing different than that, uh, from what's come before, such as, as fights over uh, the Eurozone, the Schengen area, uh, even common agricultural policy. There's nothing different between populism and then those challenges to integration that the European Union has overcome. And in fact, if, if European leaders can uh, channel some of the uh, the um, anger that some of these populist groups have, have voiced. Uh, they can come up with four reforms uh, that will create uh, more equal or more um, support for the European Union. So what is populism? Populism derives from the Latin word populist meaning the people, implying a strong connection to popular uh, sovereignty and rule by the people. Uh, most considered a thin ideology that can exist alongside a diverse array of other ideologies such as communism or um, conservatism. Um, rather than presenting a coherent worldview or a particular set of policies, uh, populism instead provides um, a unity of, uh, of, of people, of, of thought, of voice. Um, and populism emerges when there is a democratic deficit, when the people feel that institutions are not responsive, or when their voices don't matter. And that's certainly the case sometimes in, in the European Union today. A lot of people believe it is, is very technocratic. Um, that it's very bureaucratic and that their voices simply don't count. In fact, a Pew Research survey from 2014 found that 81% of Italians thought their voices didn't count as well as 80% of Greeks, that their voices did not count uh, in European Union matters. Um, so what is populism as a threat? Uh, populism is primarily a threat because it does not accept the legitimacy of the political opposition. People are a united front. And when that occurs and populist leaders hear dissenting voices, they oftentimes punish them because any sort of dissenting voice represents special interests or uh, the establishment. Um, and the ideology of populism is fundamentally incompatible with that of the European Union, uh, which supports compromise, uh, supranationalism, and, uh, uh, and uh, the mutual tolerance of different countries and nations. So with that in mind, I decided to look at three different case, case studies. Uh, first, here in Britain, 
uh, later in France and as well as Hungary. I chose those three because I thought they represented a good mix. Uh, Britain, for instance, has always had a strenuous relationship with the European Union. Uh, France, on the other hand, has had a, uh, has been a key driver of the European Union. Uh, they, along with, uh, along with Germany, are really the two steers of the future uh, for the European Union. And then finally, Hungary. Um, it's a later addition to the European Union. Uh, socioeconomically, it's a little bit weaker than the other two, um, and not as well as established. So I thought they presented uh, good differences in terms of how populism impacts different countries. Uh, so first with Britain uh, and, and Brexit, which is really the most uh, prominent case, uh, Brexit began with a growing disconnect between the average British person and, and government policies providing uh, the spark to leave. Uh, people were frustrated with the growing immigration crisis, uh, people coming from the war-torn Middle East, as well as bro uh, gross socioeconomic inequality. Uh, people were frustrated that there are a lot of elites living in, in posh London suburbs versus people struggling to get by in, in uh, cities or in the, in the countryside. So for the first time in history, there was a referendum uh, that actually led to a country leaving the European Union. And it was a really uh, divisive vote. Only 52% of people uh, supported leaving the European Union um, versus 48% in favor of staying. Um, the young and the Scots decided wanted to vote to stay primarily, uh, while the old, uh, older generations and, and English were very uh, primarily on the, uh, the leave side. So with with Brexit, um, Britain has done better than expected, uh, than a lot of skeptics thought would happen, at least economically. It's added about 300,000 jobs to their economy, and unemployment remains at about 4.3 percent uh, versus the EU average of 8.8 percent. At the same time, it's, it's definitely been politically um, divisive. Uh, in negotiations with the European Union, uh, the British are really arguing more with themselves as people like Boris Johnson and Theresa May, are a lot, there's a lot of infighting between them rather than real negotiation with the European Union because they really don't know how to proceed. So politically, there's certainly been a lot of issues. Um, on the ground, there's also been uh, significant divisions. Uh, Post-Brexit, uh, some surveys by the Times found that there's a, a significant rise in hate crimes, especially in London, um, as there's just been a lot of division within society. Um, so, uh, along those same lines, um, it seems like the European Union doesn't really seem to care about Brexit um, as much as the British do. So for the British, Brexit is a big issue, obviously. But the European Union seems to have moved on. And this uh, survey from Pew kind of supports that idea. A lot of people are very sad about the UK's decision to leave the European Union but they don't believe that the EU should offer them any kind of favorable terms. Um, alongside that, um, in a given day of September, uh, The Economist found that there are 22 news headlines about Brexit in British newspapers, but only four in the, in the continental Europe. So while there are a lot of concerns and a lot of countries are looking at how Britain is proceeding and if they can get those more favorable terms from the European Union, um, it does not seem that countries are overwhelmingly uh, interested in doing it themselves, that they have kind of moved on and they are still very supportive of the European project. Uh, France was really supposed to be next after, after Britain, um, primarily because uh, they had elections uh, next. They've been hit hard by a lot of the terrorist uh, threats, um, as well as from immigration. Uh, economically, they've been very weak. Um, they have uh, double-digit unemployment for over a decade. So certainly they have some reasons to, to um, be critical of the EU, and there are certainly um, certain reasons for them to support somebody like a Marine Le Pen, who supports uh, leaving the European Union and who promised a referendum. Um, that being said, that never happened. 
Uh, Emmanuel Macron, the, the centrist pro-European candidate, defeated Marine Le Pen, uh, capturing 66.1% of the vote. And he has since used some of those populist reforms to really push, um, uh, or he's used some of those populist sentiments to push reforms that a lot of Eurocynics plan play EU integration. Uh, he's working to create new ministers to increase transparency uh, and to support uh, European security integration. So he's, and it is, if, if Britain is maybe a, a look at how uh, populism can be necessarily bad for EU integration, then France is maybe an example of how it can be good and how it can push reforms uh, for the European Union. Uh, Hungary, on the other hand, uh, is again another case of, of how populist uh, sentiments in, in Hungary can demonstrate the inherent uh, dangers of populism. Uh, when Viktor Orban and his party came to power in the 1980s for the first time, they were really seen as, as uh, heroes because they pushed back against Soviet rule. But since then, since the 2000s, when Orban returned to power, um, that populist sentiment has led to a crackdown on uh, free press and on uh, the courts. Uh, in particular, he has claimed that he represents the average Hungarian and that the Hungary were made a bastion of Christendom. Um, and then said, and subsequently, he's really um, not supported any sort of EU immigration plan. He demands that the EU pay for uh, the border walls that Hungary has uh, built for it, um, their borders to prevent immigrants from, from coming in. And then there's also a lot of democratic backsliding that you see um, as he's appointing party, mem party members to uh, government agencies that were supposedly independent but really are not anymore. And in response, uh, the Commission, the European Commission, is working on a series of infringement proceedings against Hungary um, to really strip them of their rights to vote in the European Union decisions until they begin to accept um, more uh, immigrants. It's unsure if the EU has the political capital to really do that or, or where those things are at this point, but certainly Hungary um, and the EU have had a very strenuous relationship due to uh, Orban's uh, populist sentiments. Um, looking at public opinion polling, um, things are a little bit more positive. Uh, public opinion polling from the Eurobarometer, which is kind of explained here, um, created in 1973 by the European Commission to compare trends within the European state. It um, interviews thousands, at least a thousand people in each country um, of their sentiments on the EU. It's released every spring and fall. Um, some of the data I have here is from the most recent one that was released in December. And looking at that, uh, Europeans are generally very optimistic about the future of the European Union, despite what is going on in certain countries, such as Italy right now, or even um, Greece, Hungary, or, or Britain. Um, in general, uh, uh, optimism has, has improved up to 57% uh, from the low of 20, 2016, 2015, when there was a decline, some believe due to Brexit, and then as well from the economic recession. So the rose also rather surprising, people remain very committed to this European project, and optimism is only improving despite some of the setbacks in individual countries. Uh, similarly, uh, Pew Research data shows that even after Brexit, uh, these countries here have a higher approval rating of the European Union uh, since, since the decision, with the exception of Italy, actually, which is interesting, but it's only a percentage point. Um, so again, just illustrating the, the idea that despite some of the setbacks in individual countries and the, the concerns that the sun has set on European cohesion and integration, uh, that really a lot of these countries are very committed and the average European is very committed. Uh, so what conclusions can we draw from this? Uh, populist leaders often enact reforms that are at odds with what the EU stands for, for instance, in Britain with the decision to leave, or in Hungary with the decision to crack down on the free press, or uh, uh, to neuter the courts, essentially. 
Um, at the same time, while populism has sort of delayed European integration, it has not completely stopped it. Um, it acts kind of in a pendulum. It's not, European integration is not completely forward. It's not going to, uh, at all times, be integrated, or it's not at all times going to improve integration. Uh, instead, it's going to take its step backs. It's going to have its uh, setbacks and then improve. Um, as we've seen in a lot of, of crises in, in European Union history, uh, such as the fights over the Eurozone or uh, monetary policy. None of it was easy, but it didn't stop further integration uh, in the future. And then finally, uh, popular sentiments can be used to channel um, uh, reforms that do duplicate some of the problems of the European Union. It is not transparent. It isn't transparent enough. There are still a lot of concerns that uh, European, the average European, their voices are not concerned or are not considered in decisions. So, if leaders like, such as uh, Macron in France uh, can channel those sentiments, then perhaps some of those issues can be addressed.